Amen. Well, let me have you remain standing and grab your copy of that wonderful word that God has given to you and open it up to the book of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 7, to be precise. We are going to read verses 1 through 23. We'll be looking this morning particularly at the second half of that, uh, beginning in verse 14. But I want to read the whole passage there from verse 1 to verse 23 in Mark chapter 7. Follow along as I read. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray now that you would bless your word as it goes forth. We pray that you would bless uh, the one who is preaching. We pray that you would give him uh, clarity of expression, clarity of voice, accuracy of thought, and we pray that you would help us to hear that we may give good attention, Lord, to what you say to us through your word today. 
And we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, the living word, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing this morning to look at this episode, this larger episode that we just read. Of course, last week we considered the first half of that in verses 1 through 13. And there Jesus was confronted by a group of Pharisees Pharisees and scribes who were sent from Jerusalem concerning why some of Jesus' disciples were not adhering to the ritual hand-washing before meals. And this uh, confrontation became a a teaching by Jesus about the place of tradition and authority and, in this larger section here, about the whole topic of purity and defilement, ritual, cleanness, and uncleanness. Specifically, Jesus addressed the first part of that in what we saw last week, and today we will look at what he taught about the question of purity and defilement. Uh, Throughout Scripture, of course, purity is connected to righteousness and impurity and uncleanness to sin and, and separation from God. And these are crucial topics for us to understand. Just to point that out, I just grabbed one uh, verse from Revelation chapter 21 in John's description of heaven where he mentions there that nothing unclean will ever enter into that place. So Jesus has been speaking, as I say, with the Pharisees. He finishes with the Pharisees. And remember, he does so with a very strong condemnation of their practice of honoring human tradition above the word of God, above the teaching of God. He says, thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And he concludes by saying, and many such things you do. And so, after that, he turns back to the crowd that, uh, who presumably have been there and that he had been talking to before the Pharisees came up and asked their question. And in verse 14, we read that he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. So he speaks to them, and now he's going to speak to them in response to the discussion that he's just had with the Pharisees on the subject of of defilement. But before we get to what he says, his main comment here, look there again at verse 14 at his call to the people. Look at how he calls them. He calls them and says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. That's a very prophetic, very Old Testament prophety-like introduction. And he is calling the people here as they get ready to hear him, as they get ready to be addressed by Christ as he teaches them, he calls them to two actions, to hear and to understand. And that's important for us when we come, when we gather together as we do every week to hear from God. First he says, hear me. He says, listen as I speak to you, Jesus says. And we need to all take that to heart as we sit here each week. It's good to be reminded of this from time to time because we, we get into the habit, right? We 
get in the car, come down here, we file in, we sit in our uh, regular pews, um, we open our Bibles, we, we hear, we sing, and sometimes what we don't do is listen. To listen uh, in the service is to listen to God as he speaks in the sermon. Did you know that God speaks to us through preaching? Not because of the preacher. He's certainly nothing special. But God says that he has ordained the preaching of his word, especially that last part is important, isn't it? His word. It's not just preaching. And there are many things that are preached today that are not his word. But he has ordained the preaching of his word as the means by which he speaks to us. As the means by which, even as he, 2,000 years ago, called these people to him and said, hear me, he, whenever he gathers us together and, and through the ordained preaching of the word, Jesus says, hear me. And so we need to hear him. We need to pay attention as God's word is preached. What does that mean for us? Well, it means turn off the phone. If you're using your phone as a Bible or if you're using a Bible on your phone, I guess I should say, that's okay. Although I encourage you to use a real Bible. Um, Put down the bulletin that you may be reading, anything else that you may be reading, anything that you're preoccupied with. Children, stop talking to each other and playing with each other and playing with toys and listen the best that you can. A lot of the things that are said maybe you won't understand, but you can ask your parents about that. You can ask the pastor about that after service. But we need to hear what God says to us, even as Jesus tells the people, hear. But he also says, and understand. Apply your God-given powers of concentration. This is for us today, as it was for them. Apply your mind to what you hear. Don't just hear the words. Pray for good understanding as you listen. We often pray. After we read the Bible and we get ready to to go into the sermon, I, I pray that God will help us to understand. You pray that too as you're hearing. And again, this goes for children as well as adults. You know, in our, in our churches, in our church in particular, we encourage the children to be in the service. And that's so that they can learn to worship. It's because they're part of the congregation. And it's so that they can learn as well. So they can uh, hear and understand. So parents, teach your children to pay attention during the service, especially during the preaching. And after the service... Continue uh, the the exhortation or to to obey the exhortation to understand. People in past generations would would discuss the sermon. And I encourage you to do that as well. Not during the service, but after service. On the way home, in the car ride home, uh, at lunch. This is where discussion, asking questions, reviewing what was said becomes important. And it's important for us to not just hear, but to understand. Christianity is a religion that is meant to be understood. It's not just about feeling and emotion. It's about thinking. Christianity is is a thinking religion. It is a rational religion. It is bound uh, in history. A real God with a real son and real people and real events, real places, real times. 
And it's meant to be thought about. Isaiah said, come, let us reason together. In Ephesians 5.17, Paul the Apostle says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He has given us his, his written word with stories and accounts and teachings to be reflected on, to be thought about, and with the help of the Holy Spirit to be understood. So we must seek to hear and to understand. The Lord calls us to that as he calls on the crowd here. Hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus wants to help these people as he comes to them, as he talks to them, especially after what just went on between the Pharisees and him. To respond to that conversation that he had in all likelihood in their hearing just a moment ago with the Pharisees. He addresses these people now as the good shepherd who who wants to comfort them by correcting the bad doctrine of the Pharisees that he just had to correct. The defilement comes uh, from, from washings or eating the wrong thing. He wants to correct that. The Pharisees, you see, thought that the heart of the problem with people is, with, or is dealt with by adherence to the external. Or what Paul called in 2 Timothy 3, the appearance of godliness. And so Jesus wants to come along and correct that. So in verse 15 then, he lays out his thesis of what he's going to be talking about. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That's the crux of this. That's the substance of what Jesus is saying to them and to us today. That the Pharisees, he says, had it exactly wrong. As do Pharisees today. And you know, there are Pharisees today, not in the robes and and dressed the way they did, but people, even in churches, who teach the way that the Pharisees taught and put forward the types of things that the, the Pharisees did. Jesus wants to correct that. Because our problem, Jesus is saying here, is not with externals it's it's not even with with food that goes into our mouths or things that we touch or handle or or taste or eat or drink but the heart of the problem jesus says is the problem of the heart our problem is with the evil that comes out of our hearts because our hearts are evil which shows and demonstrates and proves that the seat of defilement, the seat of pollution, is our own fallen, sick, deceptive, self-centered, depraved heart. And our problem is with that. Now, remember from last week, I should mention this again this morning, that Jesus here is in no way belittling or demeaning the law of God. Remember in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I I, I haven't come to do away with the law. But what he is doing is demeaning and and, uh, speaking against the extra-biblical, the anti-biblical law of man that the Pharisees were putting forward and were binding on to the people. 
The man-made laws of, of washing and ceremonies and rituals that man puts up in the place of God's own law. Those, Jesus said, have got to go. In fact, in Christ we know that all of the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law are done away with because Christ has fulfilled all that they anticipated, all that they pointed to. And the people must hear and understand that the externalistic religion of the Pharisees is not God's religion. It is not the religion that the Scriptures teach. Now, Pharisees, both ancient and modern, Christian Pharisees, we might call them today, they see religion, and many people see religion, see Christianity as a series of do's and don'ts or performance and external obedience, similar to washing hands and circumcision. Today, there are different things that man has put in that place. Today, it's you know, avoid smoking. Don't go to movies. Issues of, of how you dress or wear your hair or if you wear makeup. Both are religions that are largely dependent on outward actions, outward performances, outward appearances. Remember that the Pharisees, and Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, had downplayed the more important aspects of God's law and had added performance to the things that they did in regard to, to God's law. They focused on, and Jesus addresses this, they focused on murder but not hatred. They focused on adultery but not lust. They focused on vows but not lying. And then they added their performance. When giving alms, they blew a trumpet so everyone knew they were about to give an alms. When praying, they made sure to be visible. They loved to stand on the corner so everyone can see them. And when fasting, well, then they liked to look like all disheveled and, and so everyone knew that they were fasting. And now Jesus comes along, as he did on the Sermon on the Mount, he does so here, and says that those external things are not the point. That that acceptance before God is not gained by those outward things, nor are they, is it lost by not being concerned with that externalistic man-made law. But he teaches, Jesus is teaching, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart and the condition of the heart, not what goes into our bodies. We refer to this external religion uh, the focus on doing some things and avoiding doing others as the basis for one standing before God, we refer to that as legalism or sometimes as works righteousness. It's the belief that what I do, what I do, to reemphasize that, is, is what determines if I am right with God. And if that was what Christianity is, if that was what the Bible taught, then we would all be in a different situation because though none of us can do what God really requires, we could all go through the motions, and very often we do. But we cannot do what God really requires because, as we remind ourselves so often, the requirement that God gives is perfection. 
Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Psalm 24, we read it for our Old Testament reading this morning. The question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now that doesn't describe any of us sitting in here today. But that's the law. The requirement for do's and don'ts, if you want to try to be right with God that way, that's the requirement. And that ain't happening. But the purpose of the law is not to give to us a a stairway to heaven. The purpose of the law is not to show us how to get to heaven. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for the gospel. That there is another who has done what we can't. One who does have clean hands and a pure heart. One whose righteousness far exceeds that of the Pharisees. It is Jesus. It is he alone who does all of that. And he, by God's love, by God's grace, gives all of the benefits of that righteousness to anyone who comes to him by faith. How does salvation come? How do we gain salvation? Well, it is now, have you, in the past, have you heard and have you understood? If so, you could say this right along with me. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through what we do. And what Jesus is saying here is that it cannot come, righteousness cannot come by any ritual, by any washing, because the problem with man is not external, it's internal. Uncleanness, defilement is in here. That's where it comes from. And that's true for all of us. And no amount of of washing, no amount of abstaining from unclean foods, of of circumcision, um, any behavior can help that because the lack of those things is not what causes us to be defiled. Nothing from the outside going in defiles us. But Jesus says it is the things inside coming out that defile us. The thoughts, the intentions of our heart coming to mental, emotional, and physical manifestation, those are what defile us. Those are what make us unclean because they spring from a corrupted place. Now, Jesus says that to the people here today who he has called to himself on this occasion. Those who have probably just heard, again, that interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they've been reminded of the Pharisees' call via the tradition of the elders that those extra-biblical regulations passed down through oral tradition are the way to go, are the way to God. They are those who have been reminded to be very careful to ritually wash before they eat and to especially wash and bathe Ritually, after coming home from the market, if they want to stay in the the Pharisees and in God's good graces. To those people, Jesus, as the good shepherd, comes to them today and says, that is just not true. If you fail to wash your hands when you come in to eat, 
the worst that you will happen that will happen is you'll have dirty hands. And if your hands are really dirty, you may get some extra bits of something in with your food. But you do not become defiled before God for not washing your hands ritually. Then we read in verse 17 that when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So the crowd is dispersed, the crowd leaves. Jesus and his disciples retire to what Mark calls the house, probably the house, perhaps Peter's, that Jesus is using again as his base of operations. And when they get together there, apart from all the people, the disciples ask Jesus further about this. And Jesus' reply to them, to put it in in modern language, is is something like, really? 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 You have to ask me about this? We've been through this, Jesus is saying. You've you've been there for my other interactions with these ideas from the religious leaders. And indeed they had. This isn't the first time that Jesus has been accused of doing things that, that he ought not, not because he was breaking God's law, which again he never did, but because he was breaking their, the Pharisees' regulations. He was going against the tradition of the elders. In Mark 2.15, Jesus eats with tax gatherers and sinners and gets a rebuke from the Pharisees. That was a category of people, two categories of people, that though it sounds biblical and there's a biblical meaning uh, to it, the Pharisees had expanded it to those who did not adhere to their laws and called those people tax gatherers and sinners, and you don't eat with them. But Jesus did. In Mark 2, the next passage, verses 18 through 22, the question to Jesus there was, why don't your disciples fast? Not a biblical requirement, but a requirement according to the tradition of the elders. In the the next passage, Mark 2, 23 to 28, the charge from the Pharisees was that Jesus and his disciples were doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath by gleaning heads of grain to satiate their hunger, which was a perversion by the Pharisees of the biblical requirement. And Jesus had to remind them that ceremonial laws are subservient to the need of a hungry person. And then in Mark 3, again, the charge of doing something that wasn't lawful on the Sabbath. Here it was that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, a man with a withered hand. And instead of rejoicing in the grace of God in healing the man, they became angry. They became so angry that they immediately went out and began to work with a politically based group, the Herodians, to see how they might kill Jesus. So, And the disciples were around for all of this, so they've heard the interactions that went on. They should know the difference between God's law and man's law. They should understand, there's that word again, the difference. But then Jesus answers them in verses 18 and 19. He repeats his answer and expands on what he had said earlier to the crowd. And it's the same thing. He says, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. And notice that. It's not that it does not defile him. It's that it cannot defile him. Now, if you're reading from an NIV, they sort of twist that around to say that 
nothing going into him can defile him. It's the same idea. They just rephrase that. But now here, Jesus apparently has turned from this idea of washing to the idea, a very important idea, of, of food. Obviously, as he talks about what goes in to you from the outside. In fact, Mark confirms that that's what Jesus is talking about down at the end of verse 19 with this parenthetical uh, editorial comment when he says, thus, that is by this that he's saying, he declared all foods clean. Now that's a big deal too. Because this category of defiling actions, the eating of certain foods, is biblical. Back in the Old Testament Mosaic Law, you can read about it in Leviticus 11, especially it's repeated in Deuteronomy 14, there's a fairly detailed list of animals that were clean and therefore edible for God's people, and there was a list of those that were unclean or defiling and therefore not to be eaten. And you're all familiar with that. You're familiar with the Jewish dietary laws. Well, this, this is from where they come. But one thing that the people, that people today seem not to understand is that the distinction there is not health-based. We got all these diets, all of this health stuff based on what God told his people in the Old Testament. It's not that these foods are inferior or unhealthy. In fact, the reason for the particular list that God gives in Leviticus 11 continues to evade scholars. They try to say, well, it must be because of this and this. You know, it was because God chose those foods as unclean. Also, we might mention that these categories are ritual. They're not moral. There's nothing bad about a pig that is not about a cow. But while the reason here for, for the specific choices is difficult, the reason that God chose the certain animals, the purpose is not difficult. It was to serve as a reminder and as a continual picture to the Israelites of separation, that there are distinctions between clean and unclean, between sin and righteousness, and between God's people and those who are not God's people. And the Jews really sort of cued in on that. The whole purpose of abstaining from certain foods as a picture of that distinction is also removed in the New Testament, as it is especially in what the Jews regarded as the most important meaning, the distinction between God's people and the Gentiles. And Mark says here that that in this teaching of Jesus, this distinction between clean foods and unclean foods is done away with, which Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes. And remember that our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration includes these little parenthetical statements. It includes every word that we have. Now here it's also interesting to remember from whom Mark got his information about the life of Christ. Do you remember that? Were you hearing? Were you understanding when we talked about that a while back? If so, you remember that it was Peter from whom Mark got most of his his material. And Peter himself, some 20 years or so before Mark wrote this gospel, although it's recorded later in the Bible, 
Peter got a very personal and a very clear object lesson on this removal of distinction between clean and unclean foods and between clean and unclean people. You remember from Acts chapter 10. It's lunchtime. Peter's hungry. He goes up on the roof waiting for them to get lunch ready and he sees a vision of a sheet coming down and, and on this sheet are all sorts of, of animals, unclean animals. And God says to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. Peter says, yes, Lord. Yeah, Peter doesn't, does he? He says, no way, Lord. I would never eat an unclean animal. To which God then responds, what I have called clean, you shall not call common, is the word that's in our translation. The word common means defiled. So right there, it's the same thing as here. And after serving with Peter and listening to him, Mark was probably clear as to the import of Jesus' comments here in this place, here in Mark chapter 7. And again, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit guarantees that. So clearly Jesus is now referring to the clean, unclean distinction found in food. And he says that whatever kind of food you eat and goes into your stomach can't make you unclean as the Pharisees would say. And then he explains why in verse 19. He says, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then the statement, thus he declared all foods clean. See, again, the place of true defilement is the heart. And the heart, Mark is saying here, is not part of the human gastrointestinal tract. Jesus is saying that. The heart... In, in Jewish thought, is not the organ that pumps blood, but it stands for the center of man's moral and intellectual and spiritual life. It's the, the I that we speak of. And it is to that place, to that heart, for example, that the prophet Nathan learned that God looks to see who's defiled and who's not. So the heart is the mind, it is the understanding, it's the will, the affections, the conscience. And that, Jesus is saying, is not affected at all by food or drink, as far as clean, unclean designations go. Food goes in, goes through the normal process of digestion, and passes out. So what goes into the mouth cannot defile us. But on the contrary, look at verse 20. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. The heart, Jesus says again, is the problem. And it is what comes out of that seat of our consciousness and our will that is defiling. It is that which was especially touched in the fall. And the prophet Jeremiah gets it exactly right and states it perfectly when he says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 9.3, says the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And God himself, back in Genesis chapter 6, said that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that, beloved, is our problem. Not that our hands are unclean, but that our hearts are unclean. 
And what makes them unclean is not a failure to wash properly or to eat the wrong or eating the wrong foods, but our first parents' disobedience to God, believing the lies of the devil and thinking that they should or could be free of God. That's the problem. That was what brought true uncleanness, not just on themselves, but on all of their posterity, us. And it is that heart which Jesus says is spewing out uncleanness in so many ways. Acts follow nature. Sometimes we say we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. And we sin because of our evil hearts, in thoughts and in words and in deeds. It was Jesus in Matthew 12 that says it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And it is that defiled heart we see in verses 21 through 23 here that colors all of our actions and leads to the things that Mark lists here in verse 21 and following. Now we don't need to spend a lot of time doing a deep dive into to all of these. You know this list. There are similar lists throughout Scripture. And you see these things every day. You know what they are. We see them on the filthiest street and in the most opulent mansion of the richest and the most famous. You see them on the news every night. And you see many of them in the mirror when you look in it. But the, and, the, and the point here is not, is not the, the variety of sins, although it is a very broad list, containing uh, explicit actions, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. It includes internal attitudes, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. But the point The reason Jesus brings those up is not so much to point out the the breadth of the list, but to point out from where they come. And they come from within. Springing up from our hearts. And Jesus says, that is what defiles us. And it is that, beloved people of God this morning, which cries out for a remedy for something to be done. Again, if it were a question of outward ceremonies, we could handle that. They did in the Old Testament, though Hebrews reminds us that even those ceremonies and those sacrifices didn't really overcome the defilement of man. Only Christ does that. The Pharisees were quite good at doing those external things too. right? And they thought they had the system down. But Jesus called them hypocrites as a result. We saw that last week. Because they don't even live up to their own system, let alone deal with true defilement that comes from within. No, there is only one answer to the defilement of our deceitful, depraved hearts, and that is the cleansing power of God, power to remove that corruption, to remove that defilement. In, first of all, a change of position which we have, Christian, through the grace of God and the blood and the righteousness of our high priest, Jesus Christ. 
as we are declared righteous through Christ, we are also declared clean through Christ. He bore not only our sins, which we often talk about, but we don't often say that he bore our defilement, which he did. And though our sins were scarlet through Christ, now they are white as snow, cleansed. There's an old song that says, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in addition to that positional cleanliness now, secondly, there's an ongoing cleansing of our defilement, the defilement that's still within us, worked continually in us by the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, the heart is where he works wonders. And the human heart is a mighty, dark, nasty sewer of a place to work. But the Spirit is there, Christian. He's there every day, sovereignly cleaning out that defilement that still spews out of us as Christians. And he will continue that sovereign work in your lives, Christian, for the rest of your life. So we're not defiled by what goes in, but by what comes out of us. The heart of man's problem is the problem of man's heart, that it is defiled. But beloved, hear and understand today that God is greater than our heart and that the Spirit has given us a heart of flesh and that our heart belongs along with our body and soul, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who will keep it and who will cleanse it for his glory. And to that, let us say, amen. Our Father, we confess again our need for continual cleansing. We know that we have been cleansed in your sight by your Son, bearing our defilement and providing his own cleanliness. And we thank you for that, O oh God. But we thank you also that those, the Spirit is continuing to work in us, working through your word, working through the preaching of your word to, to purge that defilement from our hearts. And we desire that, O oh God. We desire it so much because we see ourselves as defiled people. We pray that we would look to you and understand that our the remedy for that defilement is found only in you and only in your Son, Jesus Christ, not in any outward acts, not in any acts that we do, not in any ceremonies, but only through you and your Son and your Spirit. And we thank you for that. Amen.